says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And there was none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young, young people, and they were dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Verse 3, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you have incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man he has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery which, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is the word of the Lord. So we, last week we introduced what is the book of Job? What are, what are we talking about? What kind of genre? What what kind of literature are we looking at? This week, I want to continue to introduce the book of Job and ask the question, why in the world would a church go through the book of Job for 15 weeks? It seems like one of the most depressing books, one of the most uh, 
obscure, mysterious, one of the most avoided books in all of Christianity. But the Lord has called me to preach the whole counsel of God and to not skip over things just because they make me or you uncomfortable. So I feel like this is a timely book and also a timeless book. So we can't miss what is weaved through those very verses. And and this is the one thing we need to know about our God. Okay, look at me for just a moment. Our God is sovereign. Okay, and we're we're going to um, define what sovereign is in, in light of the book of Job. Okay, so if you look at a few verses, if you just, if you look at chapter one and chapter two, uh, in verse six, you see that they present themselves, that there's this actual presenting themselves that, that Satan actually has to come into the presence of God with someone else. Okay, and then God asks the question in verse eight, have you considered my servant Job? Okay, so this gives us the picture that Satan is not omnipresent and, and omnipotent like God is. God actually has to present to, jo- uh, to Satan, have you thought about my servant Job? He's righteous. And then Satan says, have you not put a hedge around him in verse 10? Have you not put a, re- a hedge around him and his house? You've protected him, God. And in verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, they have this back and forth dialogue, conversation that goes on. And then in verse 21, Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord did what? He took away. The Lord has taken away. And then we go to chapter 2 in verse 6, and, and, and God says, spare his life. You can, you, can, uh, you can do whatever you want to him. You've taken everything away, Satan, but now you can affect his health. Just, do, just spare his life. Okay? And then in verse 9, uh, Job says, or Job's wife says, just curse God and die. She knew that the better way out for Job was for, just, for him to just curse God and God would smite him in that moment. And then in verse 10, chapter 2, Job says these, these very famous words, shall we, we, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? So these are all verses of the sheer reality that God is in complete control of all that is taking place in the life of Job. Even the minor details, even the degree of his suffering. God is in complete control. So, I want to take some time and I want to define sovereignty and suffering. So, before we really dive into chapters 1, 2, and 3, we need to define these words, okay? So we're going to look at two words this morning, suffering and sovereignty. Number one, God's divine sovereignty. This is known as the doctrine of God's divine sovereignty could be defined as his supreme reign or how he governs all things. He is in complete control of all creation, okay? There are some people who believe and they're called deists, okay? That God created the world and he set it into motion and he folded his arms and sat back and just let it do what it's doing. Does that sound like a good God to you? One that's not intricately, intricately involved in every minute situation, even to, uh, to, to the furthest reaches of the, the Amazon forest. Any bird that falls from any tree, God knows why it fell from that tree. Any moat of dust that you see in your house, 
God knows the direction of that moat of dust. So now, humanity's suffering. This, this in short form, could be defined as a constant state of hardship. Now, I could ask the question, and I, you don't have to your, raise your hand or anything like that, but I could ask you, has your life looked like one of constant hardship? Maybe you've had seasons where it's like, this is going pretty well, and then you feel like, when will this season ever end? It's just a constant hardship. And, and suffering could be subjective to that person's story, but you know what? It's still suffering. And we want to be sensitive here at Redeemer that when people come to us, that just because their story doesn't look like ours or just because their suffering doesn't look like ours doesn't mean it's not suffering. We want to go to the Scripture and see what is suffering. So you cannot just find this is what suffering means in the Bible. So we need to look to stories of certain people and specifically to the Lord Jesus Himself. So if you read the Bible, you will see that almost every character, whether in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, endures hardship and suffering in their lives. And it all begins in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, God created a good world. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we broke that good world with our sin. Our representatives, Adam and Eve, broke this world with their disobedience to God. So that's when suffering comes into the world. So one particular person that I wanted to look at was the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. And here's just a small timeline of Joseph's story. He's born to Jacob, who's, who's this great patriarch in, in the book of Genesis, and he has all these older brothers. And Jacob, he is Jacob's favorite, okay? So Jacob actually makes him a coat of many colors, and that means that he's, he's kind of the favorite of the, of the, of the sons, Okay. So the, the brothers don't like this, and Joseph has some dreams about his brother that they're actually bowing down to him. And he tells them these dreams. And then after a while, these, these brothers are upset, and they take him out, and they sell him into slavery, and they go back to his father Jacob, and he's like, a, a wild animal got a hold of him and killed him. And Jacob's like, he's distraught. But he gets sold into Egyptian slavery and he goes and he gets put into prison and he works as a slave and he finally finds favor with a guy named Potiphar, okay? And then Potiphar, his wife, she, she has the hots for, for Joseph. That's, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. She's got the hots for him, okay? And she tries to do some stuff with Joseph and he, and he runs away from her and she goes and she accuses Joseph of trying to do things with her that aren't right. She, she accuses him of these things. So they throw him back into prison and he gets forgotten in prison, almost killed in prison. And there's a lot of suffering that happens in Joseph's life. And then he becomes Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt. He becomes his right-hand man. And a famine hits the land. And because of this dream that Joseph has, he says, this is what we need to do and we're going to have plenty. Okay, God has spoken to me in a dream. And if we do these things, God, we will have plenty. So he goes to Pharaoh and he tells him. And then guess what happens? Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to try to find food. And he sees his brothers. Okay, And I want you to see this. In Genesis chapter 50, it's the very last chapter in Genesis, verse 20. Underline this, highlight it, circle it. Okay, This is a big verse in the Bible. Genesis 50, 20. His brothers, Joseph's brothers come to him and he forgives them, okay? And he gives them food. 
and he brings his father to Egypt, okay? And Genesis 50, 20 says this, as for you, he's speaking to his brothers here, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Look at me, church, for just a moment. Joseph does not say, what you meant for evil, God turned it for good. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant the same evil for good. Are you following me? God means evil. Though God is not the author of evil, he means evil for the good of his people. He does not turn anything. He does not get surprised by what Satan does and say, oh no, i got to fix this situation now. Now I have to intervene. God does not intervene in situations because God is in complete control of his creation. So God uses the exact same evil that happened to Joseph's life for all his life for good. So I wanted to look at that for just a moment. And if we look at, we looked at this verse last week, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to what? His purposes. All things. And in Greek and Hebrew, whatever you want to you wanna translate that in, that all is all. Anything that happens in your life, whether it be good or bad, God uses those things and he means those things for the good of his people. So if we look to the life of the Lord Jesus, we see the worst form of suffering. And I say that because Joseph was a sinner. Job, though the Bible say, says he's righteous, was a sinner. Jesus was not a sinner. Okay? So the absolute perfect life that he lives in our place and it was not one of ease. If you ever hear a preacher saying, well, Jesus walked around with a really nice robe and he had a lot of things, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus was actually homeless. He had to depend on other people for where he was going to stay at certain places. So Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life and not one of ease. And then he gets arrested and falsely accused and, and put on trial. And he's suffering in the hands of Jewish leaders. The absolute cruelty as he was led to that Roman cross being beaten and humiliated and spit on and his beard being ripped out of his face and then hung on that wretched tool of execution and finally dying a physically excruciating death. Look at me, church. Do you know what the word excruciating means? Have you ever experienced excruciating pain? Excruciating in the Latin actually means pain from the cross. That's how horrific the pain was that Jesus experienced on this cross. Look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to be here a lot this morning. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 16. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
Church, look at me for just a moment. If Jesus suffered, so will his people. Now, and, and, and I'm one who believes, yes, Jesus gives a life of abundance. But what do you mean by that? What do you mean by a life of abundance? It's one of freedom in his spirit. It's one that I don't have to hide in my sin anymore. It might not be that I get lots of stuff or that I have fancy cars or that I have a really nice big house or that I have really nice clothes or anything like that. My life might be one of suffering from the moment I'm born to the moment I die, but God promises us that that is not the end. But we will suffer as his people. These are not my words. This is the, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome that if Jesus suffered, so will his church. So are we beginning to see God's good and gracious plan in suffering? We need to continue and define sovereignty biblically. Now that we know what suffering is biblically, although it's easy to just type it into the search bar, you can Google it or you can go to your Bible app and you can just search the word sovereignty, you will find the word sovereign or sovereignty in Scripture. But I don't think it defines what we're talking about this morning. I want to look at a few verses, okay? Look in the Old Testament at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. It says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Now flip over to Psalm, Psalm 115. We read this last week as our benediction. Psalm 115, verse 3. It says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. Proverbs 16, 33, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What does this mean? And the, the writer of Proverbs here, King Solomon, is, is trying to think of the most random thing. So any dice that is thrown in Las Vegas, God knows the dopping of that dice. That's how in complete control our God is. Look at Acts in the New Testament. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, starting in verse 24. I know I've got you flipping around a lot. Acts 17, 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. I'm going to have you turn to one more. Ephesians chapter 1, still in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And I could go on and on and on in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I want you to get the picture that we love and serve a good God who is in complete control and governs all things by the counsel of his will. And guess what? He doesn't need your help. God does not need your help. He chooses 
to use us. Unless we see God as sovereign, our suffering is in vain. It has absolutely no purpose and it's doing nothing in us. Our suffering has no purpose unless we see God as sovereign. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. So I want to end our time looking at the book of Job for just a few moments. Look at me. Questions, as we go through the book of Job, questions will be raised in your heart and in your mind about God. And I want to say that's okay. In light of the authority of the Bible, my question is, are they the right questions? We need to keep in mind Job, the book of Job, is meant to give the people of God wisdom. Remember, it's wisdom literature to show us that no matter the situation, no matter the questions, wisdom is found in God and God alone. He possesses all wisdom and is free to display it however he wants. So your mind may go to places it has never gone. And, and very rarely goes as we look at suffering and what may come. Just as Job did not know, we do not know what God has planned out for us. And I want to plug just really quickly the, the Doctrine of God class, the Redeemer Equips class that we have starting September 19th. These are some questions that we're going to wrestle with. Okay? We're going to wrestle with some of these questions. So after all that Job experiences in chapters 1 and 2, What does he say? Turn back to Job chapter 1. Turn back to Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Then go to chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And it's clear from these verses that Job knows his place. God is creator And Job is created. The further we get into the book, the more clear this this distinction will be for us. One example is after God questions Job in chapters 38 through 41, Job humbly and thoughtfully responds to God. Look at Job chapter 40. Job chapter 40, verse 3. Job 40, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. This is Job's response. When God responds to Job in in these few chapters, Job takes a step back and he says, 
I'm going to put my hand over my mouth because I have no idea what I'm saying when I'm faced with the the almighty, omnipotent creator. When I see him face to face, there's a tension here for us. Does God allow, and here's a question, does God allow all this to happen to Job? Yes. Does God cause all of this to happen to Job? No. If Job does not accuse God of evil, can we? If God, if Job endured all these things and he never accused God of evil, can we when suffering comes our way? Our statement of faith, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, Article 3.1 says, From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. That means he doesn't participate in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. So in root, if we root ourselves, I'm sorry, if we root ourselves in the sovereignty of God, that God controls all things, that he's governing all things, and trust that he is good no matter what may come to pass. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 rings truer the longer we live. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says, for I consider that, there's our word, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, Charles Spurgeon says, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you should lay your head. So I want to end with this. The cross that Jesus Christ died on was the ultimate depiction of God's sovereign plan. We read it last week in in Acts chapter, I believe it's in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's speaking to the Jewish council there, to all the Jewish people who who, who should have known the law, who should have known about the Messiah. He says, God foreordained and predestined the plan for his son to be crushed on the cross, which you, you are the one who did it. You are the one that is going to be held accountable, not God. Because God is holy and His purposes are holy, He crushed His one and only Son on a cross in the place of His people. The Father sends His one and only Son into the world in a predetermined plan to crush Him on a Roman cross to accomplish His eternal plan of redemption. What you meant for evil. God meant for good. Do you see how even in the book of the beginnings, in Genesis chapter 50, we see the cross of Jesus Christ? Because the Bible is telling one continuous story that's not about us. It's about one person, the man Jesus Christ, who's coming to save 
sinners. The ultimate depiction of God's sovereign plan is the cross of Jesus Christ. So let us, with Job, cover our mouths, humble ourselves in repentance, and trust a good and sovereign God who works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. So why the book of Job? To remind us that our suffering as His people is not in vain. Our suffering is not in vain. R.C. Sproul, the great theologian who just died in 2017, said, we as the people of God should call this the vocation of suffering. This is an office that we hold as His people. If the Lord Jesus suffered, so will His people. I do this every week. This is the way I end my sermon. I want to invite you into this. If you are not in Christ, if you do not consider yourself a Christian in this place, your suffering is in vain. Your greatest suffering is actually coming after you die. Your suffering is not doing anything. But for the people of God, your suffering in light of God's divine sovereignty, He is making you more like Jesus. He has purpose in what takes place in your life, even when it's really, really difficult. Even when you think, how much longer can I endure this? There are purposes in His plans and in His sovereign plan in, in your life when suffering comes. So if you're not in Christ, I want to invite you into this. Repent of your sin. Come to the Lord Jesus. Place your faith in Him. Because if not, your suffering is not doing anything. You're, you're, the suffering life is actually coming after you die. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus. Turn from your sin and look to Him who saves. And if you are in Christ, maybe our, our response when we worship here in just a moment is to humble ourselves and say, Lord, maybe there's been places in my life where I've suffered and I look back and I say, God, this is your fault. And He says, no. This is not my fault, but I have purposes in your suffering to make you more like my son. Let's pray.